0: Testing, testing, one, two. Let's get our sound levels right. Looks good. We're going to take it off of there. Let's open this up. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Dog Backwards. We have, uh, man, it feels like it's been a while. And I'm sorry, I know I tend to do one about once a month. I have no idea how long it's been. It feels like four years because of all the madness that's going on in the world. I've been really tempted to do kind of a, a sociological breakdown of what's happening in the world. I'm still researching, studying. I always felt like I had my finger on the pulse of what was going on through postmodernism and all of that. And, and I'm, I'm caught a little off guard about some of the philosophical underpinnings that have been changing our world in a radical way. So I'm researching and studying, and we'll we'll get into that something uh, maybe the, the next podcast. In the meantime, if you're interested, start looking up things like critical theory, cultural Marxism, uh, the Frankfurt School, and, and just things like that um, might really help you get a grasp on what's going on, including things like critical race theory and all that stuff stems from a philosophical worldview that is not biblical, though it has some valuable things to offer. We'll try to break that down. This one is one I've promised for a while. I know it's uh, it's post-millennialism. That's what we're going to talk about today. And uh, don't be afraid of the name just because it's called post-millennialism. And I'll be using words like eschatology. And you go, I have no idea what that means. That's what this podcast is for. We're going to break it down and hopefully see why it's relevant and um, why I think it is a biblical view to hold. So, uh, that being said, let's cue the music and get started. Okay, so I love our intro music. I, I love that. I want to play you just a, a quick snippet of a song from the 80s, because it ties into what we're talking about today. So, here's that song. Oh, baby, do you know what it's worth? Heaven is a place on earth. And I play that because that is so much of uh, summing up the misinformation Christians tend to have on what heaven is. Heaven is not some place in the clouds that we're waiting to go. Heaven is going to be on earth. New heavens, new earth. And this is why it plays into the larger picture of the end time. So if you want to talk about end time stuff in the fancy college term Seminary term is eschatology. That's the study of the end times. And we are in uh, such a mess in our understanding of what end times is. A lot of that has to do with a book from the 70s called uh, The Late Great Planet Earth. Uh, it came out in the 70s and it was a New York Times bestseller. It was by a man named Hal Lindsey and it changed how Christians viewed the end times, but it was a radical shift. Uh, In believing that the end was near and that everything was going to get worse and then Jesus would return. And my question is, is that a biblical understanding? Everybody knows those Lost Behind books that kind of came in afterwards and really solidified people's understanding and view on that. Even though Lost Behind does not claim to be biblical, it was merely just uh, an adventure in a thought of, oh, I wonder what would this look like? But it, that the, the view of that came from Hal Lindsay's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. And my contention would be is that it's not biblical. It's not biblical to be afraid and constantly waiting for the end and everything is going to get worse. And so why would you ever do anything? right? If the world's just going to go to hell in a handbasket and then Jesus comes back, then why not just sit at home and not do any evangelism or anything like that and just wait for jesus to come back and fix it all well that was not the view in the old testament i don't think that was the view in the new testament and that was definitely not the view uh, in early christendom here in the u.s so when the puritans came and they brought this message they were radically trying to change the world because they believed it was through christians that the world would be radically changed ushering in a time of great peace and universal harmony and then jesus would return it's as though we are we are preparing the uh Of The king we're the bride and we are we are making the home look nice. We're cleaning everything up We're getting rid of all the skeletons in the closet. We're sweeping everything We are just man We are going to do our work to make sure that when the king returns that his creation is ready for him so Um, One of the things that is important to understand because this is such a big subject and it's really easy to get lost in the weeds. So let me start off with the big picture idea. And this is what I often refer to as the great reversal. So, this goes from Genesis to Revelations, and the great reversal is, is God is undoing what we have done to get back to his original plan. God does not have plan B, and we screwed up plan A, so now he just has to throw the whole thing away and start over. No, God is going to work through our mistakes and get back to how he wanted things to be. So, uh, if, if you're like me, I'm a Christian, but there are moments, and there's a lot of moments, where I still don't feel complete. We often tell people that if you have Jesus in your life, then you will feel complete and whole. Why have Jesus in my life? And there have been great moments where I do not feel complete and whole. Why is that? Because that is only part of the picture. The way mankind was created, there are three things that are, I believe, required for us to be truly satisfied and truly full. So the first one is that we are supposed to be in God's presence, right? And and so now we have God living within us. So that's already happened, but not yet in the sense that we will live with God in paradise when this is all over with. The other part is, is that we are supposed to be at peace with each other because Adam was not meant to be alone, that there was supposed to be perfect unity and peace uh, among brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we're also supposed to be at peace with this world. So we were created to fill this earth and subdue it. And subdue means to bring into, um, so it's like out of control and we're supposed to bring it under control. And so the garden needed to be tamed. It was our job to work it and build it and help it thrive and turn it into a city that honored and reflected God. So, you need the world, people, and God all together. That completes the picture of how we were created to live and exist. So, God is reversing and undoing what we have done. And that happens in a lot of ways, and there's some really clear pictures. And, like Deuteronomy 32, uh, we are told that God, there's the, um, Deuteronomy 32 is kind of taking place around the Tower of Babel. God not only separates people, but he turns the people over to these other rulers. Uh, I believe what Michael Heiser teaches that these other rulers were supernatural beings. That's why uh, Psalms 82 says that they have fallen like men. They were going to die like men because they did not judge uh, fairly and, and well. And so why would the punishment be to die like men if they were just men, right? So Psalms 82 and Deuteronomy 32, they paint this supernatural worldview. And the Tower of Babel is where God separated mankind and also separated their tongues. And he says, I'm going to take Israel as my portion. And through Israel, I'm going to transform and change all the nations to once again honor God. Now, Israel does not do its job. It does a little bit. It moves us forward a little bit, but they fail. And so then God brings in the Gentiles and now we have Jesus Christ as the head of the church leading the Jews and Gentiles alike to transform the world back to the way it was this idea of the great reversal can be really seen in Acts the second chapter So what happens at the Tower of Babel is all the languages are separated and then what happens in act second chapter everybody hears the gospel in their own language the, the the beginning of the uniting of all these different kingdoms under one king everyone hears the gospel in their own language and so this great reversal uh gets its peak at the coming of jesus and the holy spirit and now we are to be doing the work of the church and preparing the earth for god and the view that I'm talking about is called postmillennialism, and essentially it means that the world is actually going to get better, not worse. It's going to get better. It gives you hope. As I was somebody who has struggled with anxiety, as you've heard, this played a big role in me beginning to see positive and to have hope, even when it seems like the world is in great distress, and such as the world is in great distress right now, and I'll talk at the end about how this plays into it. So what is the Biblical evidence for this worldview? Oftentimes people, I get these flyers in the mail about revelations and it's like, come see how Obama was the Antichrist. And can you believe how many people have been like, this person's Antichrist, I can remember all the time. It was Oprah was the Antichrist, Obama was the Antichrist. Some people will say, well, Trump is the Antichrist, or Putin is the Antichrist. And we've labeled so many people, like, maybe someday someone will get it right, right? But what if the Antichrist has already come? What if most of Revelations has actually already happened? That tends to be my view, that the first 13 chapters of Revelations has already happened. Uh, we'll, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get there. So, I think the verse that most clearly lays out... A chronological eschatology and that just means which is there any verse in the Bible because a lot of times what people do is they'll go from here to here to here to here and then they try to piece it all together about what's gonna happen in the end how does this all look do do we all get raptured up in the air and you know then the world's just, just gonna go really bad and or does it go really bad then we get raptured up in the air what happens well 1st Corinthians 15 uh, starting around verse 22 begins to lay out one of, if not one of the only chronological eschatologies to help us understand. Now, it is not as full maybe as we would like, but it lays out the big picture. So this is 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. So here we're, now, we're talking about our order. Christ, the first fruits then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So we have to really notice that In verse 24 he says then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power so he said well of course that fits into this traditional view that everything is going to go to hell in the handbasket Jesus is going to come back he's going to defeat all the enemies and he's going to defeat all the bad guys and the angels are going to kill all these evil rulers and all the demons and all that stuff And then God will turn it over but notice verse 25 it says for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet the last enemy to be destroyed is death so who is reigning what does it mean for he must reign where is Jesus right now the New Testament tells us very clearly that Jesus Christ is reigning and ruling sitting at the right hand of the Father and according to 1st Corinthians 15 It says that he must reign, that he's going to stay there until he has put all enemies under his feet. So all of God's enemies are going to be defeated while Christ rules and reigns at the right hand of God. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So it's when Jesus returns that he destroys death, and that's the only enemy That he really needs to come back and to destroy he's already destroyed sin right he's already destroyed these other things but he's going to come back and he's going to end death for good and that is the last enemy to be destroyed so how how is he destroying all these things how are all enemies being put under his feet meaning that Christ is going to rule over all these enemies while he's still at the right hand of the father the contention of the Puritans and many believers throughout history, and this was actually the predominant view for hundreds and hundreds of years. A lot of the reformers and all these really impactful people held this view. That's why they were so active in trying to make the world a better place, because they believed it was through the church, the hands and the feet of God. Isn't that what we're called? We are his hands and we're his feet. So we are supposed to be at work bringing all of God's enemies, capturing every thought, right? We're supposed to bring all of God's enemies into submission to Jesus Christ, and then he returns and he destroys death. Now, this also is Psalms one uh, says something similar. Um, here's another verse, Psalms 22, and we'll start with verse 27. And what I think is really fascinating about Psalms 22 is at the very beginning, it's the verse that Jesus quotes while he is dying on the cross. It's the, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And this is how that chapter ends. Now, it was very typical uh, in Judaism. You would say a verse, and people would kind of go, they, they wouldn't just go, oh, I like that verse. They would know the verse in context. They would take all of it in together. So as Jesus is dying on the cross and he's saying, Father, why have thou forsaken me? It starts off as a rough verse of despair, but Psalms 22 ends with Jesus reigning and ruling over all nations. So verse 22, uh, chapter, Psalms 22, verse 27, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. And they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship. And they that go down to the dust shall bow before him. And no one can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and they shall declare his righteousness Unto a people that should be born, that he hath done this. So he's, he's describing that everybody at this Psalms 22 that all the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. This is not God returning and making everybody turn to him. This is that all the nations, it says, because he is the governor among all the nations. And this is important because Jesus is in charge currently. We would say, who is the king? Who is reigning and ruling? Jesus is. Who's really in charge of this world? Is it Trump? Is it Putin? Is it, is it uh, the Democrats? Is it the Republicans? No, the one who is in charge is Jesus Christ. And Psalms 22 paints this victorious view. And the Old Testament always paints this victorious view that God would be victorious in this time, in this world. And I think it's a shame that we've reduced God's victory only at the very end. And that, oh, only, you know, God's going to be slightly victorious, but the enemy's going to get most of the victory. And that's kind of the current view that we have. Now, in Matthew are two parables that talk about what is the kingdom of heaven is like, because Jesus, when he comes, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom of God plays a really important role in this post-millennium view. That's a hard word to say this early in the morning. But So here's the two parables. One from Matthew says, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Now, I always get annoyed when critics Say you know jesus said that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds it's not literally the smallest well jesus starts off by saying here's a parable so parables have figurative language so i i I just i think that's annoying but it would be like me saying dude i saw the tiniest dog the other day those little micro pigs right i want a micro pig if anybody has micro pigs for free they want to send me i want a micro pig (laughs) i don't have the land i don't have the yard for it and i have two dogs that would think it was a snack But they're cute, right? But if I was to say, dude, I saw the smallest pig ever. Do you think I'm being literal? You'd be like, "Uh, Caleb, I actually did a quick Google search and the smallest pig to ever live is this size. No, it's just a figure. It's just the way we talk. So, but Jesus is talking about, here's this tiny little seed. But yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and it becomes a tree. So that these birds come from all over and they perch and they rest in their branches. The kingdom of God is at work now. The kingdom of God is at hand. We're living in the kingdom of God. God is working. And he says, it's going to start off small. And it's this is tiny little seed. So tiny that it might just be like this poor Jewish carpenter, right? Who comes and proclaims the kingdom of God and dies on the cross with just 12 disciples. It starts off really, really small. But then it gets planted in this field. Where the field, though it's the smallest of seed, it's going to grow. So Jesus has this belief about the kingdom of God that it's going to grow to this giant size. There's another parable he tells them right afterwards. He says, um, verse 33, he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Yeast that a woman takes and she mix it And it works its way all through the dough. And what does that yeast do when you mix it into dough? That yeast is going to cause the dough to rise. So it's like the kingdom of heaven. It starts off as this little bitty thing, but when it gets mixed into the dough, it's going to change everything, and it's going to cause it to rise. So this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God at work, it's supposed to be not just, oh, it only has a small effect, and only a few get saved, and only a few follow God. It's like, no, it's actually going to transform everything around it. But what does this look like? How is this going to work? How does the world possibly get better? I know we talked about the hands and the feet. Well, there's another Psalms uh, chapter 2, and I, I think this gives us another picture of what this worldview might look like. In the post millennial positive worldview it says why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed saying let us break their chains and throw off their shackles so this is uh, this is really important because what have people said about Christianity And the current worldview, it's trying to liberate people from Christianity, right? So it says all these kings of the earth, they gather together and they're like, we need to liberate and break their chains and throw off their shackles as though Christianity is some kind of prison, as though belief in God is somehow a negative thing. Look, the the one unprotected class in the country, you you cannot make fun of anything anymore, but you can make fun of Christians all day. They mock us, they laugh at us. And how does Jesus respond? Verse four, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. So his response is, you're going to try to break the chains of these people. They're not chains. You're the ones in chains. And I have put my king. You're not in charge. My king is on Zion, my holy mountain. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are you who take refuge in him. So uh, verse 7 again, 7 and 8. He says, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Talking about the Messiah. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your, your possession. Here's my question. Do you think Jesus forgot to ask? God promised him, all you have to do is ask me. And all these rulers and all these people who are plotting against your people, God's God's, uh, believers and followers after him, he says, all you have to do is ask me and I will give them all to you. Do you think Jesus forgot to ask? I don't think so. Then it says, you, speaking of Jesus, will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces. And it tells them, kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. So these are, these are not people who are alive and Jesus comes back and destroys them all. It's like rulers who are existing now, you need to turn and follow Jesus. That is the post-millennial hope. Post-millennialism is often mistaken for believing that everybody is going to love Jesus before Jesus returns. What I would argue is that the Bible teaches that the rules and the rulers of the world will all reflect the teachings and morality and honor Jesus as king. Now, not all people who serve under those rulers will follow Jesus, but every nation will be a quote-unquote Christian nation, right? So every nation from China to Russia to North Korea, every single one of them is going to have a Christian a dedicated, following believer, following Jesus Christ, the rules and the way they treat the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized will all be biblical. The prison systems will all be biblical, right? So everything that the world operates will be on a biblical structure, and I believe that is when Jesus returns, not when everything has gone to hell in a handbasket. So you would the first pushback that would tend to be on this was like, but Caleb, look what's going on in the world. The world's getting worse, so it seems to, you know, have this. Uh, the current worldview on eschatology seems to be right. And you seem to be way off base because everything is getting worse, isn't it? Not at all. If you look over a fifty-year time frame, yeah, things seem to be pretty bad. If you look at a ten-year, five-year, one-year time frame, right? The stock market is crashed. We're in a global pandemic. Um, all hell's broken loose. And so you say, Caleb, things have gotten worse. No, but look at a 500-year time frame. Things are incredibly improved. We can't have this narrow time frame. We have to look in a much larger scale. Uh, Poverty is way down. Death and murder is way down. Infant mortality rate is much higher. Children aren't dying at birth the way they were. People are living longer. Health is getting better. Poverty throughout the world is disappearing slowly but surely people aren't dying of just lacking basic water and food I mean the world has been transformed look how Christianity is beginning the revolution in China right now it's Christians that are going to topple the Chinese government because they're demanding the freedom to worship their God It was Christianity that changed the Western world. It has been Christianity that has gone throughout the world. Wherever Christianity has gone, the rights of women, the poor, the oppressed, have increased no matter race, no matter gender. It is Christianity that has made things better, and Christianity has continued to spread. I would say we're just getting started. And if we have this, everything is going to hell in a handbasket mentality then, of course, we're just going to sit back and wait for it to end. But if we can reclaim what is called what I believe is a biblical eschatology, then we might put on our shoes and our gloves and be the hands and the feet again. It emboldened the Puritans. It emboldened the early believers to go about and transform the world. So what about Revelations, then? Well, that would take a whole nother episode, and maybe we can get into that um, sometime later. I'm currently reading through a couple of commentaries on Revelations because I have a a decent sense, but it's been a while since I've been studying it, so I I need a little bit of a refresher. But here's what I would suggest. Revelations' understanding is split into two basic groups. There's those who believe that it was written before 70 A.D., and those who believe it was written after 70 A.D. And where you line up on that is going to drastically change how you view Revelations. Now, why would that date matter? Of all the events that have happened to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people, 70 A.D. stands at the top or near the top. It was when they rebelled against Rome, their foreign oppressors, and Rome demolished them, including destroying the temple. This is what Jesus predicts. This is why he weeps when he looks over Jerusalem, because in And their anticipation and desire to be what God called them to be, they take up arms. And that is not the way, violence is not the way that we bring about the kingdom of God. And that's a a good message to those of us right now. There's Trump is coming to Tulsa tomorrow uh, to host one of his rallies. And uh, I'm worried, I'm worried. Uh, There's word that Antifa and all these different people are being bust in to cause riots here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And if you don't know much about Tulsa, we are a cowboy state. Um, open carry is allowed. You don't you don't need any kind of license You can just walk around with a gun you can walk around with an AK-47 and You can go to Walmart and see people with pistols and revolvers everywhere, right? Uh, I have a concealed carry I can carry a, a gun and hide it. No problem, right? Um, you don't even need that license anymore So everybody in Oklahoma owns a gun Everybody here hunts. I mean this this is uh In in some ways, the last vestige of the wild, wild west, and this is not a place where they're going to take kindly. So I'm really worried about that. And so my message would always be we don't respond to difficulty through violence. That is not the way of Jesus. Violence always leads to more violence. Sorry, I got sidetracked. So um, that's what Israel does. It rises up and tries to overtake Rome, and it gets destroyed. Now, if Revelations is written before 70 A.D., Specifically, like the first 12, maybe 13 chapters are letters written to the church on how to deal with this and predicts the coming of the destruction. That it's going to be really bad, that there's going to be blood in the streets, that there is this Antichrist, right? So I I think the Antichrist is already coming long gone. And there, there's, we could really get into the weeds on this, but um, there's, if you study postmillennialism, and I'll give you some books at the end that might help you, it, it just lays all of this out and actually makes revelations make sense. So if it was written before 70 A.D., then it was actually useful to the people who received it. If not, if it was written after that, then it was basically just this weird book that nobody understood then and nobody understands now and nobody will understand until the time comes. Lots of people. So even John, as he's writing Revelations, is really confused about what much of it means because the temple hadn't been destroyed yet. And he's trying to describe things. So even John doesn't fully get what Revelation is, but it's amazing how all the commentators know more than what John knows. They're like, oh, well, this means this and this means that. So I, I think when it comes to eschatology, the first rule is that everybody is wrong. The post millennial view is not 100% accurate. I'm sure there's nuances and all sorts of things. That could be wrong. And as I say, uh, there's an old joke, I'm willing to change my mind in midair. So if I'm wrong and the world gets worse and then we're raptured, uh, I don't necessarily think the rapture is biblical, especially how we see it. You're not, you know, your car's not going to be driving itself because you were raptured. That is not a biblical view. Look, study, read it yourself, right? We just don't see that in there. If it was written after 70 AD, then we really don't know what's going on. But you can make a very, very, very strong argument that it was written before 70 A.D., and if you do that, everything seems to make sense. It becomes much easier to understand, and it would actually have been useful to the churches that received it. That's why it's written to specific churches. If you read Revelations, to this church, to that church, and then it gives instructions on, hey, this is going to happen to you, this is going to happen to you. It's, it's, it's in many ways very practical. So this is just a very brief introduction to a different view of end times. I only listed a couple of verses we could go on and on but there's this large meta-narrative Which is just a fancy way of saying a big picture and the big picture is that God wins that God wins and he uses people to win and We tend to think that God wins But everybody else is gonna lose and God only wins at the end. He's not winning right now If you would say oh, I you know I'm waiting for Jesus to come back because the world's gone to hell you think God is losing the battle that God's, the Holy Spirit that lives and dwells within believers is not sufficient to change the world. Jesus asked for the nations, or he forgot to, according to some views, right? Like, like, oh, I guess he just forgot to ask. I don't think so. He asked for the nations. You think God won't give him all the nations? If he is, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, that he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So Christ is reigning, and he's going to reign until all enemies are put under his feet. And I believe he's going to use the church to do that. So if you're interested, there's a couple of books that you can read. Uh, the first one is Heaven Misplaced by Doug Wilson. Another one, um, kind of, it's it's meaty, but it's good. Ken Gentry is one of the leading experts on post-millennialism. I say that word wrong all the time. But Ken Gentry, uh, G-E-N-T-R-Y. I tried to get him on the podcast to discuss this, but he's like, I'm booked for the next year. And uh, Reclaiming Biblical Eschatology, and that is by, um, I got it right here. Hold it's actually called A New Heaven and a New Earth, Reclaiming Biblical Eschatology by J. Richard Middleton. And that's the one that really put me on this path. And he doesn't, it's more of just understanding what the new heaven and the new earth is. A lot of people think that this world just gets tossed away and God makes a new one. I, my personal opinion is that God does not allow the enemy to have a single victory, including this world. That even this earth, in the same way that you are being renewed, this earth is going to be renewed. So it's a very positive way of looking at the world. And if you look throughout the history of Christianity, we've seen how God has radically changed the world, starting with Jesus and the 12 disciples. And for some reason, we think that he stopped working now and things are just going to get bad. But I think things are going to continue to get better And it might be a long time coming, but someday, every ruler, every law of the land, after maybe we've exhausted all other things. Because the the way the world is currently operating right now is just eating itself alive. It's just going to eat itself alive. And then it's just going to disappear. It cannot maintain this pace. Something's going to have to happen. And a revival could most definitely break out. I was talking to somebody about this the other day. And look how one event one event a bad cop killing a man murdering a man has changed the world already now what happens if somebody it's happened before breaks into a church and shoots up a church so black people have been murdered by cops before But this time, for some reason, there was a radical shift, caught on camera, man begging for his life. What if that happened to a church, and all of a sudden, the world began to change, and Christianity was lifted up? Christianity is what unites races, unites gender, and people go, oh, we had it wrong this whole time. It could take a single event like that, and the world could begin to change. We never know when or where or something like that might happen, but my hope and my prayer is that all of us would believe that the world will be transformed by the church and the bride of Christ, and we would make the way for Jesus' return. I hope you guys enjoyed that, and uh, look forward to talking to you again. Of course, this, is, uh, this podcast is supported by me, <laughs> so if you would ever like to give and help support, uh, I might feel motivated to make more. I don't know. I'm not going to promise anything. Uh, I do this because I, I want to help educate people, Um, I'm I'm a teacher, so all I know how to do is teach. I also have, um, on our church Facebook page, I'm doing a systematic theology video teaching series. Short, less than 20 minutes, usually less than 15 minutes. And we're covering things like the Trinity and the Old Testament, uh, who is God, what is God. And we're just going to work through as much theology as they will let me. And I'll start posting those on my website as well. CalebMoore.tv, you can give, you can learn, you can contact me, all that stuff. Uh, Don't forget to leave a like and a review that really helps this podcast spread. And we'll talk to you later.